This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Andrew Roberts is one of the most consequential biographers and historians in the English-speaking world today. A graduate of Cambridge University, Professor Roberts serves as the Roger and Martha Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and is also a visiting professor at the War Studies Department at King's College in London. He's known around the world for his best-selling biographies on Napoleon Bonaparte, Winston Churchill, and his histories on World War II and the Waterloo Campaign. His books not only tell a story, but teach us about leadership at some of the most crucial junctures in world history. His most recent biography, The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III, is no exception to this rule, and that book is the topic of our conversation today. Andrew Roberts, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you very much indeed. It's uh, great to be on the show again. It is uh, great to have you again. And uh, as I will uh, simply repeat my pledge, the next time you write a book, we'll be right in line to uh, to talk about that one. And, and we've talked about all kinds of things over the years in terms of the course of Western history, the English-speaking peoples, uh, Winston Churchill, uh, and uh, Napoleon. Uh, but now we're talking about George III. And, and so I think the obvious question Maybe uh, on both sides of the Atlantic is, why 700 pages on George III? <laughs> um, well, because, as the uh, subtitle of my book points out, he's a tremendously misunderstood monarch. Uh, he is somebody who, for 200 years, has been on both sides of the Atlantic, um, denigrated, essentially, as a uh, monster and a tyrant but with a huge cornucopia of new uh, information about him that the Queen has made available in the Royal Archives, it's now possible to see that he was really anything but that. You know, when I asked the question, why George III, uh, a, a writer with your kind of interest and, uh, and your interest just shines through, uh, you not only are telling a story, you have a point to make. And uh, that, that point comes out in the, the title and the subtitle of your book, where, again, you reference the misunderstood reign of George III. Uh, how can such a massively important reign in history be so misunderstood? I, so, in other words, I just want to put this into context. How, where did the story go off the rails, in your view? Right at the beginning. Um, of course, the central uh, thing that we all know about uh, George III is that he lost the American colonies. And um, that's always been blamed on him pretty much personally by historians, largely the Whig historians who dominated the uh, 19th century, who reckons that this was uh, personally his fault. But really, the whole point about George III is that he was a constitutional monarch. He was a limited um, monarch, and he did what the cabinet and what the government, what the majority of MPs in the House of Commons wanted. And again and again, that was the reason that we uh, in Britain lost the American colonies and, uh, and not any personal interventions on behalf of George III. That's the first thing. The second thing, of course, is that it's now possible, finally, after a couple of centuries, to write a book in um, a period when we no longer stigmatize mental illness. And uh, George III, who, of course, went uh, mad, um, misdiagnosed, as it turned out to be. Nonetheless, he was mad. And, uh, and this has been held against him morally by two centuries of historians who actually blame him personally for his mental illness. And uh, now, fortunately, we can uh, get beyond all that. 
I asked those questions, but I want to stipulate, I found the book absolutely fascinating. I, uh, I, I found it, uh, I, I, I've enjoyed every one of your books, but I, I found this one more interesting than I expected it to be, given the fact that uh, it, it, it's difficult, uh, not impossible, but it's difficult to write a boring book about figures such as Churchill and Napoleon. Uh, but about George III, you think, uh, you know, again, on both sides of the Atlantic, different, different patterns of uh, judgment against George III. But one of the things that, uh, that, that you do very helpfully is to bring him alive. And I want to put him in historical context. Uh, the House of Hanover, uh, the first British monarch since uh, Charles I to have been born and raised in England, that seems remarkable in itself. It does, doesn't it? But the House of Hanover, of course, came from Hanover. Um, and the Stuarts, their predecessors, had been, uh, after having lost the Glorious Revolution, yes. um, and indeed also they lost the uh, the English Civil War, um, the same family, uh, were were very often in exile. So it's 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 explicable in those uh, in those terms at least. And he came along, and after all, is is George the Third. Uh, his father died just before he was 13 years old. Very tragic life in so many ways. I think, uh, you know, the opening chapters of your book uh, demonstrates the vicissitudes of life for a, a, you know, a boy who would eventually become king and appears to have been liked by so few in his own family. That's right. But the thing about the Hanoverians is that everybody hated each other in that family. Um, it was a profoundly dysfunctional family. And uh, his uh, father was hated by his grandfather, King George II. King George II was hated by King George I. Um, George III's son, King George IV, hated his father, George III. So frankly, it's not un unusual or unlikely, frankly. And in fact, the surprising thing is that George III himself loved his own father, um, Frederick Prince of Wales. And this, uh, this intergenerational ha hatred and conflict which was sort of baked into the British Constitution. Actually, it was a systematic thing, really. Um, it came to a terrible head when the poor old, uh, as you say, 13-year-old George III was, um, was left to sleep in the room below the putrefying corpse of his own father because his grandfather, George II, refused to have his son, uh, Frederick Prince of Wales, buried. Uh, until the um, until the frankly the uh, decomposing corpse was was so um, created such a stench that it had to be uh, buried at Westminster Abbey. So you uh, you see he was very firmly sort of thrust into this this uh, intergenerational right. feud. Well, one of the points that uh, came to my mind as I was reading is that if you're looking for a recipe to create uh, a young man with uh, the pretty deep psychological, perhaps even psychiatric issues, <laughs> it would be. The House of Hanover, and uh, under those circumstances, with a 13-year-old boy who, uh, who did love his father, unable to go or forbidden to go to his father's funeral because his grandfather thought he was just too young. Yes, that's right. I mean, his, the, the relationship um, with his grandfather was uh, terrible anyway, but it obviously only got worse once his father died. And, uh, and there's a point also where the grandfather starts physically abusing him, sort of slapping him and boxing his ears and so on when the um, now Prince of Wales went to visit him at uh, Hampton Court. And so by the time the King was, uh, the, the Prince of Wales was 18 or so, he'd set up a rival court 
which had rival politics and rival politicians as a result. And uh, so the scene was set for huge rows over foreign policy, over finance, and uh, and also over the, the political legacy, essentially, of Frederick Prince of Wales. Let's fast forward until the time that George III is king and uh, has certain ambitions, certain political allies, and a certain understanding of the monarchy, the constitution, and the colonies. And I kind of want to work backwards. So Britain is now an empire, and uh, it, it has colonies. And, and put that in the, the, the political context in Europe. In other words, this isn't just about Britain needing and wanting colonies. It's about Britain also seeking to maintain its security as, as a nation and a world in which imperial powers are rising and threatening one another. That's right. And also, um, France has a larger population than uh, than Britain at the time. But if you take into account the wider empire of Britons, um, and especially the fact that in the Americas, there were 22 colonies, 13 of them in, in North America, but, uh, but lots elsewhere as well, um, Canada, West Indies, and so on. Um, one recognises that the uh, burgeoning British Empire um, during the Seven Years' War, what you call the French and Indian Wars from uh, 1756 to 63, um, really set a completely new agenda because it allowed Britain to play a, um, a major part in European politics because of the strength that it derived from the rest of its empire. So Britain is building this uh, empire and uh... And also the English-speaking world. And by the way, you following the example of Churchill have actually you know, written a history of, of the English-speaking peoples, writing about uh, the, the civilizations on both sides of the Atlantic in a shared common culture. But as you, as you look at the American colonies, one of the things you, you, you insinuate in this uh, very interesting book, and you actually get to, is that there seems in retrospect to have been an inevitability to the fact that the uh, the American colonies were going to be very difficult for England to keep. Yes, um, it depends really on the constitutional form. Really, I mean the um, uh, the fact is that by the seventeen seventies, America was the thirteen American colonies were um, ripe for independence. Uh, you had two point five million population, you had a burgeoning economy, 7% year-on-year growth. Mm. Uh, you had more bookshops in Philadelphia than in any other city of the empire, uh, apart from London. So uh, America was, um, the North American colonies was, was were ready for independence. Had um, Britain tried to have used some other condominium form of, uh, of uh, constitution where um, self-government essentially was given in the same way that it was in Australia, New Zealand and Canada in the 19th century, then perhaps um, it would have been possible to have extended the length of the, um, of the union. But, um, but frankly, I, I doubt it. In any way, that was trying to sort of look Hundred years forward, um, which of course uh, people weren't able to do, even even George the Third. Certain issues, just a demographic destiny, and uh, what one of the uh, functions in ways that I think Americans don't recognize. Uh, one of the great threats to the British, uh, both through domestic policy, European policy, and their attempt to hold on to North America, was preventing the colonies from moving west. And uh, I, I, I think that's a dynamic in all of this coming up to long before the emergence of the, of the revolution that many Americans don't think about. We think of ourselves as a transcontinental nation 
Britain did not want the United States to be a transcontinental nation, even with the limited knowledge they had of the landmass. That's right. In the um, French and Indian Wars, they had uh, the British government had made um, direct uh, bilateral treaties with large numbers of uh, Native American tribes. And so in October 1763, they um, made a proclamation that the uh, the process of, um, of settlement west of the Allegheny Mountains was to cease. And this, uh, of course, bankrupted various people who were interested in the, had interests in the Mississippi Land Company, for example, the Ohio Land Company, and so on. And uh, uh, important figures, you know, uh, some people who lost money on that included Henry Lee, George Washington, and others. Um, But what it also did, essentially, was to send the message that Britain intended the colonies to stay tethered to the eastern seaboard. Uh, where they were in a trading relationship with um, Britain and uh, was not going to go uh, spreading across the continent to the um, Atlantic Ocean, as, of course, uh, it uh, ultimately did. So so this was an understandable um, uh, sense of uh, frustration and irritation on behalf of the, at least the, um, the North American colonists. I mean, it was it was more popular, understandably, with the Native Americans because it essentially turned the whole of the almost the whole of the continent of America into one gigantic uh, na- uh, Native American reservation. Uh, Joseph Ellis, uh, the American historian, writes about tragedies in uh, in historical analysis and divides between the uh, the avoidable uh, tragedies and the inevitable tragedies. and And there's a sense in which I find that very helpful looking at. The, the landscape of history, and looking particularly at the United States, issues related to the European uh, peopling of uh, uh, and uh, and the spread of European uh, colonies throughout North America. Eventually, the uh, the westward expansion of the American nation. But he points out that uh, that if there are inevitabilities, they would come down to the massive size of uh, of the United States and and the inevitable growth of the American population and and the fact that strains and stresses in, uh, in Europe and uh, between England and Europe just basically meant that the place where the English speaking peoples could eventually spread out was going to be North America. Well that's right and also of course the key thing that happened as well in 1763 was the Treaty of Paris, which brought to an end the um, the Anglo-French War. And right. uh, what that did was to mean that the French were um, expelled from the North American continent. So you no longer had the fear of France in the amongst the American right. colonists. The nearest French army was in Haiti, which was over a thousand miles away. And so there was no organized body of troops to uh, prevent, apart from, of course, the British Army, to actually prevent the uh, the westward spread, what was later uh, called Manifest Destiny of America, um, westwards. So, uh, so yes, you're right. It was a, obviously a great tragedy for the Na- uh, Native American people, but for the um, uh, North American uh, colonists, it was the obvious place to go. I think another historical note, just as we're setting up the the dynamic that would eventually lead to revolution and war, is that uh, George III and uh, and the the British uh, aristocracy political class saw what became uh, the American colonies as a a singular opportunity to create a new England, 
in, in a way that wasn't true anywhere else, uh, it, simply because the English-speaking population was now uh, w- was now dominant and populating in in these colonies, and so this was a this was a new Britain. Yes, in a way that you c- couldn't really get in Asia or Africa or any of the other places that uh, that Britain was setting up its uh, right. imperial ambitions. The big difference, of course, was that it wasn't really um, a, a replication of Britain. The people that right. went out to America were not going to put up with the kind of class um, stratis- stratification right. and hierarchy that you had back in Britain. They were very often not Anglicans. They were uh, people of, uh, of lots of faiths, especially nonconformists. Uh, they were, um, a lot of them, Scots and Irish and uh, people who you know, didn't consider themselves as, as English anyhow. So even within the British context. So actually, uh, those um, uh, British aristocracy that you mentioned, who, who saw it as all being a sort of another Surrey or another Kent being transplanted across the, yes. uh, the Atlantic, um, got it dangerously wrong. But that actually is important to understand. I, I, you know, again, I think you actually make that point implicitly and explicitly in the book. Uh, the, and, and the other thing is how personal uh, the colonial and imperial reality was here, how personally tied to the king uh, these, uh, these colonies were, because that, that sets up a, a, a period of massive misunderstanding. And, uh, and you're one of the very few to kind of walk through this in a way that I, th- I think is really fascinating. It, it, you know, it reminds us it could have gone otherwise. Uh, th- there could have been other arrangements. But uh, that would have required a different king. Uh, you know, the, this, this king, uh, I just want to ask you, you know, so his personal feelings towards these colonies, what, what were his personal feelings? Because in, the, in this system, it matters. Yes, well, they tie, uh, you're quite right. I mean, the, the connection is a personal one because the charters uh, that set up um, almost all of the colonies were, um, um, were with the king. Right. And so it was a uh, it was a much more um, personal um, connection than it was with uh, a lot of um, of the rest of the empire. Uh, and also, George the Third um, had no animus against the uh, Americans. He wasn't somebody who was snobbish about them or, or disparaging about them um, in the way that some people in British society sometimes were. Um, he was somebody who was very interested in what was happening in America. He bought lots of books about them. We know that because they make, they're still there in his 80,000 um, uh, book library. Um, and, uh, and so, yes, you're right. There, there is a, um, an attempted personal connection. But, of course, he never went there. Um, he, was, he was not But he traveler. never went anywhere. He never went anywhere. Precisely, exactly. He went to. Uh, he went, never went north of Worcester or west of Plymouth. He was king of Ireland and Scotland. Never went to either of them. He was elector of Hanover, as his uh, surname implies. Didn't go there either. Uh, he stayed pretty much within a, a small region of um, of South uh, West England. So, so um, there was no actual personal connection in that he didn't know any of the American leaders, for example. Right. Although he came to know them uh, when they were quite American, as a matter of fact, we'll have to hold that for a moment. But as uh, as you tell the story, I think one of the most interesting developments is that as there is this rising sense of uh, independence and of of nationhood uh, in the colonies, the colonists make a distinction between the king and the parliament. 
And uh, and this is the great missed opportunity, or at least it, it, you could argue it's a missed opportunity. The, the colonists did not first seek to rebel against the king, but rather they sought the king to give them relief against parliament. The, the, it, it turns out in retrospect to have been a brilliantly shrewd argument from the Americans intended to at least uh, grant George III the possibility of joining an effort against parliament and basically cementing his identity with the American colonies. That's right. But ever since the uh, Glorious Revolution in 1688, um, uh, almost a century earlier, um, the Hanoverians had very much seen themselves as constitutional monarchs. They weren't the kind of divine right uh, monarchs that the Stuarts saw themselves as. And so this wasn't going to work. They weren't going to do what, for example, Her Majesty the Queen today uh, does, where she considers herself to be queen of 16 countries equally. Um, that wasn't the case in uh, in the late 17th century. The, um, the Hanoverian monarchs very much considered themselves to be uh, king of England and the English uh, Empire, uh, of which the colonies obviously were important constituent parts. So you don't have this ability, as you did after the creation of the British Commonwealth um, by the Statutes right. of Westminster in uh, 1932, of being able to separate the crown from the crown in parliament. And the crown in parliament at that stage, back in the 18th century, was all. And so George III didn't go down any of those constitutional routes that the uh, colonists, as you say, very brilliantly um, presented to him. Uh, so I want to ask a, a question I, I wanted to ask of your book uh, as I was reading it, and I'll ask you. Did George III understand what the colonists were proposing? In other words, there's a sense in which uh, you're looking at the evidence. It, it's like he just ignored it. Uh, or, or did he contemplate it? I don't think that's fair. No, I, I think he very much understood. Um, and he saw it as a, as a sort of debating tool, as a method of trying to split the, um, uh, the British monarch from the British Parliament. Uh, to sow divisions in the cabinet and uh, and generally to cause trouble, rather than as a uh, genuine possibility that he should become king of America and also be king of a se completely separate entity, which is Britain. Um, as I say, that did come about in the following century uh, and the century after, but at the time it was um, it was a totally re genuinely revolutionary concept. I mean, there is there's no example of it, for example, in the uh, in Europe at the time. Um, you get something like it with the Austrians and the Hungarians after the dual monarchy of 1867. But again, that's a century in advance. So um, how it would work would be very difficult as well, because, of course, you'd have had a parliament in New York. Um, but uh, but in what sense would the king um, have, have been able to have interacted with it on a regular basis, considering that um, communications took well over three months to get get one way and uh, and back again. So I think that uh, uh, he didn't um, interact with it in a, in a meaningful way, not because he didn't understand it or that he ignored it, but just simply because he thought that it was a ruse. So that gets me to uh, the, the turning point for Americans here. And, uh, and, and uh, you acknowledge this in your book, but uh, I guess understandably, historians in the United States give this much more attention. The dawning realization came to the American colonists that it was simply implausible that a parliament seated in London could ever represent them, would ever represent them fairly. But beyond that, 
that that parliament in London would have a a, a sinister motivation to limit uh, the growth of the United States, lest it uh, it basically uh, create an unwieldy giant it could not control, which I guess arguably is exactly what happened. Yes, exactly. That's right. And, and that's why it was right for America to become independent in the 1770s. I mean, the parliament didn't uh, exercise particularly onerous um, right. uh, powers over the Americans. You know, you do have the Stamp Act, of course, but that was only attempting to raise between 40 and 60,000 pounds from 2.5 million people. Um, and uh, the, the idea was, of course, that America should stay in the same trading block as, uh, as Britain. But it wasn't as though Parliament was attempting to, to um, influence or legislate over every aspect of Americans' lives. That was done by their local legislatures. But ultimately, Parliament did have veto rights over them. And, uh, and that was the, uh, that's the breaking point, that and the, and the power of taxation, of course. Right. So in retrospect, the the, uh, the taxation was not all that onerous. Uh, it, it would not have, uh, have greatly affected the American economy. Uh, but the uh, the American... It, it in fact, because almost every penny was being spent um, by the tax stamp act was going to be paid, was going to be spent in America. And when you get later on to the uh, tea acts, in fact, what that was going to do was to about half half the price of tea for the American consumer. So, so you know, these were not onerous, as you right. say, and they weren't intended to be. No, they weren't onerous. They weren't intended to be, but they were a very clear uh, manifest uh, signal to the Americans that uh, we will never be able to uh, to control our own destiny. That uh, not only not only that, but Parliament, and and you see this in the in the speeches, you see this in the letters. Uh, the, uh, the that Parliament was really acting in such a way that uh, it made clear the the views of the colonists were merely um, background information not taken very seriously. And one of the problems here is the royal governors, because of course, um, had they done their job an awful lot better, or even a slightly bit, bit right. better, then you wouldn't necessarily have had the uh, the troubles when you did. At least I think, because I, I I think we both agreed that they were going to come at some right. stage. Yes, but the, the um, but the idea that they that they suddenly burst out into actual uh, physical violence and uh, and bloodshed in the mid seventeen seventies is not preordained because. Um, you um, uh, had the royal governors sort of played it more sensibly. Their job really was to represent the king to the people, to the American people, and represent the American people to the king. And although they did the uh, the first half of their job, they were very, very bad at letting the king and Lord North, the prime minister, and the cabinet and the government realize the the. Um, sheer sense of uh, frustration and anger about the taxation situation by the 1770s. They did an appallingly bad job. They um, they never really uh, explained the um, the um, perfectly understandable you know problems that um, the American people have with the taxation issue. And and uh, you know they uh, they they there were 13 of them. You know one for each uh, province. And um, and they really let the king down. Thinking of the course of what became the American Revolution, and 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 by the way, let me ask you as an historian, what is the preferred way of referring to this period uh, in in British history? In other words, when uh, when when Americans are out of the room, what what do what do, what do British historians 
call the Revolutionary War? We call it the American War of Independence. Okay, uh, that's what I've seen. And uh, that, that makes a great deal of sense. And, uh, and, and of course, it's extremely similar. And, and, and that's one of the sense of the commonalities in the English-speaking world. There's a good deal of understanding what that, that represented. But in the course of that war, and we have to, to make this amazingly brief in this conversation, but in the course of that war, one of the interesting questions is, when did Britain decide, number one, that it was facing a war of independence that it, it would have to, uh, to, to put down, it, it could not ignore? And then secondly, when did Britain really decide that it could not win this war, it could not hold these colonies? Um, well, the first question was, was Lexington and Concord. That was the point um, that April that um, uh, the um, you know, blood start, started to be shed. Uh, then there came the absolutely devastating news in Britain that the Battle of Bunker Hill had not been a victory. Uh, the right. assumption was that regular forces, uh, the Redcoats, would automatically, on a field of battle, um, destroy a uh, um, essentially militia army. And when the, um, the battle turned out to be a hugely expensive uh, Pyrrhic victory, um, that came as a, as a massive shock to the British establishment and, the, and, uh, and beyond. Um, the point at which uh, intelligent people, shall I say, thoughtful people, uh, people who had a sense of, um, of geopolitics, started to recognise that this war might not be won, and that was when Burgoyne surrendered at Saratoga in October 1777. And what happened four months later when the French um, got involved in that war, um, the French are always there when they need you, um, is, to, uh, is to turn it from a colonial struggle to a, um, to a world war. So um, we were suddenly, Britain was suddenly fighting in, uh, against against uh, France in the West Indies and the East Indies and uh, Mediterranean and so on. Uh, then the following year, Spain gets involved in 1779, and we have a 1000 day grueling siege of Gibraltar. Um, then after that, the Dutch, uh, by which time the Royal Navy, which was bigger at the time than any of the individual navies, was, um, was essentially swamped by the, uh, by the French, Dutch and Spanish navies. And, uh, and the whole thing became uh, uh, an impossibility, a world war that was um, not going to be won. There were some moments, like the fall of Charleston in uh, in the June, I think it was, of 1780, uh, where, where there were sudden sort of um, positive signs for Britain. But overall, it was pretty clear um, by the time that they withdrew just to New York and Newport, Rhode Island and Charleston, that without a massive infusion of forces, and um, Britain never tried to put more than 50,000 men into the North American theatre, uh, which was nothing like enough, obviously, um, that the, the, the war was ultimately going to be lost. And, and to criticise him, and I do criticise George III a lot in this book, it's not a hagiography, right. um, he was the last person really to, uh, to recognise. It wasn't until 1780, the autumn really of 1782, that he recognized that the game was up. The version of history that American schoolboys, school children uh, are taught is, uh, is romanticized when it comes to France. So it's, it's basically, uh, yeah, we were fighting against, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the crushing uh, monarchical power of Britain and along comes this, uh, the, the French friends 
in order to intervene against the massive power of the British Navy. And what, what, what's not uh, really told in that tale is uh, the fact that this was geopolitics in, in Britain and, uh, and frankly, a burgeoning and uh, developing global empire. And so France had a very, very uh, uh, clear national interest. And it had a lot more to do with regions beyond the United States that, than the United States. I, I, I think you helped to, yeah, yeah, to no, take that out. You mustn't for a moment think that the French, um, French fought on your side in the American War of Independence uh, because of their love of uh, American freedom, democracy, and, uh, exactly. and representative government. They obviously mm-hmm. were involved um, at the very same time in crushing all of those things in places like uh, Corsica. For right. example, um, they uh, their sole interest in helping you in the uh, American War of Independence was to try to wrest the um, uh, the colonies away from the um, away from Britain and thereby weaken Britain, which it succeeded in doing to a very great degree. Of course, the um, uh, the thing that um, allows Britons to have some kind of Schadenfreude over all of this, is that the vast cost of the um, American War of Independence to the French Exchequer meant that by 1789, the king was forced to call the Estates General, uh, their version of the Parliament, which hadn't been called for years, uh, in order to try to balance the books. And it was that that started the French Revolution that led to Louis XVI having his head chopped off. So um, what goes around comes around in history very often. Yes, with a vengeance, as a matter of fact. Uh, now, there's some aspects of George III just that would be fun to talk about. Uh, his love of books and, uh, and the building of his own personal library. I've had the joy, I, it was actually back in the 80s when it was more accessible. Uh, I had the, the great privilege of, of looking closely at some of George III's library, simply one of the most remarkable libraries in the English-speaking world. That's right. And it forms now the centerpiece, the kernel, essentially, of the British Library at uh, St Pancras, five stories of uh, of books, some 80,000 books. Um, and it wasn't just a sort of personal library. Um, it was one that he allowed scholars like uh, Joseph Priestley and uh, Dr. Johnson to come in off the street to Buckingham Palace and uh, and read. Uh, it, it was kept in a beautiful octagonal room. In fact, he had five libraries in uh, in. Buckingham Palace, um, and uh, and he had this uh, this wonderful collection. But but bibliophilia was only one of his um, great uh, enlightenment um, uh, concepts. You know, he was also very interested in science. Uh, had a large collection of scientific instruments. He was uh, very interested in the heavens. Uh, he helped right. finance. Herschel's great telescope, largest telescope in the world, that uh, through which Herschel discovered Uranus, which was originally named after George uh, III. Um, he had a great art collection as well, some half of the paintings in the Royal Collection today, which is the largest art collection in the world, private art collection, has um, were bought by George III. So you have this tremendous uh, Enlightenment figure who unfortunately was denounced by Tom Paine in the pamphlet Common Sense, as being a um, the royal brute of Britain. There's literally nothing less brutish than somebody who, uh, like George III, for example, invited um, Mozart to come to play in Britain, tried to keep Haydn in Britain, and of whom Handel said that, well, this boy lives, my music needs no other champion. George III is uh, also, uh, just in terms of uh, American history, he has... Uh, 
He's influential in ways people don't recognize, even in, in the architecture here in the United States. I have to say, even, even the building in which uh, I am sitting um, is, uh, is inspired by uh, architecture that really became standardized in George's long reign. And uh, so we have Georgian architecture, uh, which, which included other Georges, by the way, but, uh, but, but in particular, George III, given the length of his reign and the influence of, uh, of the royal prerogative, uh, Americans think of, of architecture without recognizing it's George III. Yes, um, Georgian architecture, which for me at least is the is the finest form of architecture. That neoclassicism, which uh, is so perfect in terms of, uh, of perspective and uh, and symmetry and so on, um, was as you say uh, to find its apogee in the reign of George the Third. Yes. But as you also say, of course, um, it was the longest reign of any king of England. So uh, yeah. it's nearly sixty years. So you know there are an awful lot of great architects like Robert Adam and uh, and James Wyatt and William Chambers and so on, who um, who were working um, both before and after his uh, his reign. And because his reign was so long, that raises the other issue, and that, that there was a before American independence, and there was a after, and the, the after was also long. And I, I think this is another thing that to Americans, uh, it's, it's a corrective, because in one sense, the American historical interest in George III ends with the achievement of American independence. And uh, so far as in the American imagination, uh, uh, you know, the, the George is thought of, he, he basically just uh, escapes from the scene. But there's, an, there's a lot of George's reign to remain. Well, 37 years of it. Um, you know, yes. he, uh, he, he carries on until January 19, uh, 1820. So you're right. And he fights another major war. In fact, one that ultimately yes. becomes a uh, existential war for Britain. That's right. In many sense, a much more important war than the American War of Independence. And that, of course, is the Napoleonic Wars, which goes on, which went on for an awful lot longer. Um, they started in 1793, went all the way through to 1815. And uh, ultimately, um, the uh, British were victorious in that war. But poor old George didn't um, know about it himself, because by that stage, he had gone uh, mad for the fifth and last time in his career. So the last 10 years of his reign were um, spent in Windsor Castle, uh, no longer in control or even knowing what was going on. Um, so uh, so in that sense, the, the last chapter or so of uh, of my book and of his life is um, rather pathos laden. Very painful, but uh, also uh, instructive. And, and you really do go at the issue of identifying the cause and nature of uh, George III's mental illness. And uh, so give us a little background there, because, uh, you know, I think um, Americans who have an historical interest think they know what, uh, what, what the diagnosis was. You're pretty sure that what Americans think they know is wrong. Not just Americans, actually. Most British people also think it was Porphyria. This is largely because of the Alan Bennett play, uh, later right. turned into the movie, The Madness of King George, right. which uh, stated that it was Porphyria, but it wasn't. Um, the uh, extraordinary thing is that about half a century ago, a mother and son team uh, gave completely misleading um, um, symptoms to a team of doctors who understandably diagnosed the wrong illness, this porphyria illness. In fact, uh, um, having worked with some of the leading porphyria experts and other um, people in mental illness uh, and given them the correct symptoms, 
Uh, in fact, we now know that it was manic depression um, uh, type one. It wasn't, um, it was a form of, of uh, sorry, it was bipolar um, disorder, affective type one, a form of manic depression. And, um, and the poor man, the way he was treated was uh, abominable. They, they cupped him and they bled him and they forced uh, and they created artificial blisters um, on him. They kept him in a straitjacket for, for um, days on end. They uh, attached him to a chair which was nailed to the floor, did absolutely everything that was the exact opposite of what you should do with people with, with manic depression, essentially. It was a form of torture. And um, so it was, a, uh, as I say, a very pathos-laden end to his life. But I think it's very important to recall that actually none of this had anything to do with the American War of Independence, because the major, uh, first major outbreak didn't take place until 1788, which was five years after the American War of Independence was, was won by America. Right. I, yeah, I don't think Americans, at least, uh, first of all, I don't think Americans think much about George III, to be honest. Uh, but uh, as and as you say, they they would have most of their knowledge in popular culture and and from uh, that that film. But I think uh, what's interesting is that those who think they know something probably know something wrong, and it's because uh, the, the Porphyria uh, diagnosis was supposed to be the modern enlightened understanding. In other words, that was presented as the corrective to mean-spirited, uh, pre-scientific uh, uh, diagnoses of, of uh, mental maladies. Uh, it, it just shows you, for one thing, that, that this entire uh, process of, uh, of psychiatric construction and all the rest, uh, it, it's a conversation that did not take place during the time of King George himself. No, that's right. And, and as I say, I go into it into the, in the appendix of my book in some detail, uh, and I do give the um, symptoms and so on, and, uh, and pretty much the whole of, um, of modern medical evidence that, uh, that opinion that um, has taken all of this into consideration um, agrees that it was not porphyria, um, but instead, uh, as I say, um, manic depression. But what does that mean for a monarchy? <laughs> Take that as an insolent American it question. It tremendously, of course, um, up until the moment um, that his son, George IV, uh, became Prince Regent in 1810 and stayed as Prince Regent for 10 years until his father died in 1820. But, um, but yeah, I mean, to have um, two kings essentially at the uh, alive at the same time uh, wasn't good for the monarchy. Um, the knowledge, of course, that there was madness in the family wasn't good for the monarchy. Um, there was a, uh, a major problem with regard to the actual running of the country in the earlier uh, stages in the 1788, 1801 and 1804 outbreaks of his uh, of his madness, because, of course, the um, uh, the king was tremendously important. As we mentioned earlier, he signed the warrants that you raised money for. They, he signed the acts of parliament that turned them into law and so on. So, uh, so yes, it, it caused, I go into my book in some, in some uh, areas, it caused rather ridiculous um, things to happen uh, where the, although um, 
the king was declared to be mad by his doctors. Nonetheless, because the government needed his signature on, on documents, you know, they would go to him and in his moments of, uh, of clarity, they'd explain what they needed and he'd sign the documents and, and then he'd go mad again. So you do have this uh, a rather sort of uh, tragicomic um, series of episodes uh, in his reign. You make clear that uh, George III's estimation of George Washington is not just mythological, that uh, he had uh, this, this understanding that someone who, like Cincinnatus, uh, would, uh, would gain such uh, valor on the field and then go back to run his farm uh, made him the greatest man of the age. Yes, he called him the greatest character of the age. And also, I wonder if I could just read two sentences Please. of what he said about John Adams as yes. well, which uh, was at his, uh, the famous... Um, audience when John Adams right. became the first American ambassador to England, and uh, they met at St James's Palace. And uh, and George III said this. He said, "I'll be very frank with you. I was the last to consent to the separation, but the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I've always said, and I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power." And uh, I thought that was a, a gracious it is. way for him yes. to have uh, dealt, dealt with that situation. No, as a matter of fact, I marked that. Uh, I think that's about page 479. I marked it because uh, I found that very moving. And I also felt it, it, it the pathos of what that must have been like for Adams and for King George III. I mean, this is a rebel coming now uh, to present, uh, you know, documentation in order to represent an independent nation that had torn itself from the crown. That had to be one of the great moments of English-speaking history. I think so, and not just any any old rebel. I mean, it was John Adams. It was right. this this giant, yeah. this uh, this sort of you know intellectual leader of the of the revolution. This absolutely extraordinary uh, uh, figure who um, was so epicentral to the. Um, to the revolution. I mean, I think that uh, just to speak up for George the uh, Third for a moment, he was very, very unlucky that he had people. <clears throat> he was up against a, uh, um, as I say, an intellectual leader like uh, John Adams, a wordsmith like Thomas Jefferson, a soldier and charismatic leader like uh, like George Washington, people of the a polymath like um, Benjamin Franklin, and people of the quality of uh, of Alexander Hamilton and uh, Monroe and Madison. You know, to, for you <laughs> to have had squeezed, as it were, into yes. one decade, seventeen uh, seventies, men of such stature and such leadership um, capacity and yes. such um, genius, essentially. Um, you know, the, the poor old British, uh, George III, uh, was, was entirely outclassed, but so were all of the British politicians uh, who were very lacklustre, frankly, apart from the elder and the un younger Pitt, and neither were there during the Revolu American Revolution, and also, um, and also our generals, who simply um, were, were, you know, the best of them were pretty bad and the worst of them were absolutely disastrous. Uh, in 1986, when I was first studying in England, I, uh, I went to Ely, and uh, I, I went there basically not for uh, my dissertation interest, but because of architectural interest, I wanted to see the, the, the cathedral. And uh, in, in spending some time in Ely, I discovered something, and it puzzled me. Uh, here I'm an American doctoral student, and it took me a few moments to figure out what I was reading, but it was a, it was a reference uh, in the 1780s. Uh, to uh, the dead of what we would call the, the War of American Independence, yes. And, and it referred to 
uh, the attention given to the dead by George, by King George III, and by George I of the United States of America. <laughs> Again, the, the 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 British don't know what to do with the George Washington, uh, even how to refer to him. No, that's very interesting. I haven't seen that. I was at uh, Cambridge University, so I used to go to Ely um, yes, yes. quite a lot. And I unfortunately, I missed that uh, that tablet. That would have been a very interesting one. Yes, because they did um, rather assume that George Washington would take on the uh, the, the monarchy of America. Yes. Um, lots of people thought that that was what was going to happen in, in Britain. I mean, it's absurd when one thinks about it now. But, you know, uh, in those days, Republican republics were not the norm. Well, and they they really didn't have the intellectual furniture to to imagine a uh, an electoral presidency that would continue, and the Americans weren't certain it would work either. Uh, but by the way, that leads to an interesting thing. In in the twentieth century, one of the greatest uh, political debates inside the American political class is the the prospect of an an incapacitated American president, uh, incapacitated by physical uh, problems or by mental disability, and so. You you may call your uh, your chief executive a, 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 or a, your your head of state. You may call your head of state a king or a president, but mental illness is going to be a radical challenge either way. That's right. Yes. Well, that's why you passed your is it your twenty fifth amendment yes. um, that uh, that works out what to happen should your um, chief. But, executive... but only in a political context. In other words, no one knows how that would actually operate. No, no. Well, I hope you never have to find out. Yes, well, amen to that. So, so what? One question, just as, as we narrow to the end here, uh, how is it that uh, that George the Third is remembered in Britain today? And, and so, let me just ask you: Was there more interest in in, in your book on the uh, American side or on the British side? Um. Well, there were. Um, it sold very well in America, which I'm very pleased to uh, say. So, I'm assuming that that represents uh, interest. But then on the other hand, there are five times more Americans than right, there are Britons. Right. So that might have explained it as well. Um, it's, uh, he's, he's remembered today as being a, um, uh, in many ways, the founder of the modern monarchy. Uh, he um, bought Buckingham Palace. He bought the gold state coach that we use for um, for great occasions. We're going to be using it later this year for the Platinum Jubilee. Uh, he invented various aspects of the royal family, the royal walkabout, and uh, uh, the um, royal enclosure at Ascot, and the trooping of the colour, and so on. So uh, he has this kind of um, reputation, along with his granddaughter Queen Victoria as having founded the modern monarchy. Um, and some people who, uh, who think about these things also see in um, Her Majesty the Queen today, especially her sense of duty and hard work and, uh, and commitment to, um, to the nation as being something that has come down from George III. So, um, so yes, he, he has a much more, po- he's certainly not called Mad King George like he sometimes is in the American, uh, in the American press. Well, yes, but uh, the fact is that there is a clear distinction in the United States between those who are interested in history, who tend to be very interested in history, and uh, and and the great mass of the population. And I, I'm sure that's true in Britain too. Far less yes. uh, concerned or aware of the history. But what uh, reason? So, can your I book, just interject there because please. you are so right? And there was a yeah. survey of British school children. Uh, yes. taken not long ago, in which some uh, 
I think the number was 25% or so, literally uh -huh. about a quarter of them, said that they believed that the American War of Independence had been won by Denzel Washington. That's a, 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 a good clarification. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, but looking at that, I, I just want to say again, I really appreciate your your work, your painstaking work in presenting these uh, th these major historical uh, volumes for us, whether it's uh, on Napoleon or or Churchill or Disraeli soon to come, um, and, and also George the Third. The one that surprised me was George the Third. Now, it, once I once I was halfway through your book, I was no longer surprised. But when I thought about Andrew Roberts, you know, after Churchill, after Napoleon, uh, after the history of the English speaking peoples, what would come next? Uh, you know, George III is not a swashbuckling figure on world history, but he did sit astride so much of that history. Yes, and also um, I was very fortunate to come across this great avalanche of new information, and that's always a very attractive thing uh, for a yes. historian. And uh, and the Queen has made 100,000 pages of George III's personal papers, his, his memoranda and his correspondence and uh, and so on available and there were things in that and I, I do you mind if i just mention one please, sentence read one please. sentence that which i discovered in these archives yeah. which i think really sh do show a lot of uh, positive light on on this man yes. which uh, which had never been uh, spotted before and that was when he was prince of wales um in the 1750s, he was writing an essay on uh, on Montesquieu's essays on the laws, right. and in it he he wrote he he wrote this: "What shall we say for a European traffic in black slaves? The very reasons urged for it will be perhaps sufficient to make us hold such practice in execration, for an inhuman custom wantonly practiced by the most enlightened, polite nations in the world. There is no occasion to answer for them, for they stand self-condemned." And I think for somebody who then, of course, never bought or sold a slave in his life, who never invested in any of the companies that did that, and who ultimately signed the legislation that abolished the slave trade, uh, yet for I, th I think that all of those things are tremendously uh, impressive. And yet, for two hundred years, he has been held uh, in a morally sort of lower uh, light than um, the signatories of the Declaration of Independence, forty-two out of the fifty-six of whom. Um, own slaves at some stage in their lives. Given the moral weight of history and the seriousness of, of these issues, uh, I am not going to follow that up with another question. I'm going to let that comment uh, stand uh, just given the uh, stature uh, and the mind of King George III. I wish I could have known him. It's just one of those things where you, you think, now that I have thought more seriously about George III, I would like to have uh, to know more about him. So, Andrew Roberts, thank you as always for uh, just a wonderful uh, historical and biographical work. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you keep turning them out. I'll keep reading them and talking about them. Thanks very much indeed. I much enjoyed it. Many thanks to my guest, Andrew Roberts, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. <music>